This program is brought to you by Israel Restoration Ministries. What are you doing Sunday nights? Come join Friendship with God radio Bible teacher Tom Cantor of the Friendship with God Fellowship Church every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at The Vine at 9336 Abraham Way, Santee, California. Watch and listen live around the world to Tom Cantor Sunday evening on YouTube.com by searching for Friendship with God Fellowship or by going to our homepage at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. Let's pray. Father, that's what we want to do. We want to turn our eyes upon Jesus, and we want to look full into that wonderful face. Pray that it might be so, Lord, as we open your word now. May we see the face of Jesus in the Bible, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, if you turn in your Bible to Micah chapter 4, Micah chapter 4, and uh, I have a great secret here. The secret is we're going through the book of Micah. I don't tell people that because in case I peter out in the middle of it, I don't want it to be said, but you were going through the book of Micah. But we are, so now I'm committed. What can I do? Okay, Micah chapter four. But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains and it shall be exalted above the hills and people shall flow unto it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us of his ways. We will walk in his paths, for the law shall go forth out of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among many people and rebuke strong nations afar off, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken it. For all people will walk, every one in the name of his God, and we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, saith the Lord, will I assemble her that halteth, and I will gather her that is driven out, and her that I have afflicted. And I will make her halted a remnant and her that was cast out off a strong nation, and the Lord shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth even forever. And thou, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee shall it come even the first dominion, the kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. Now why dost thou cry out aloud? Is there no king in thee? Is thy counselor perish? For pangs have taken thee as a woman in travail. Be in pain, labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in travail. For now shalt thou go forth out of the city. Thou shalt dwell in the field, and thou shalt go even to Babylon. There shalt thou be delivered. 
There the Lord shall redeem thee from the hand of thine enemies. Now also many nations are gathered against thee that say, let her be defiled, let her eye, let her eye look upon Zion. But they know not the thoughts of the Lord. Neither understand they his counsel. For he shall gather them that as the sheaves unto the floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make thine horn iron, and I'll make thy hoofs brass, and thou shalt beat in pieces many people, and I will consecrate their gain unto the Lord and their substance unto the Lord of the whole earth. This chapter, this chapter is remarkable in many senses, especially as we've been going through the book of, of Micah, but it really opens with a very remarkable phrase that's so easy for us to miss because it's throughout the Bible, and the phrase is in verse one, in the last days, in the last days. That phrase is the exact opposite of the first words of the Bible in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, Bereshit. But the phrase is the contrast, in the last days, is a contrast with creation. You know, we have a museum, as you know, we have a museum to be dedicated to creation, museum of creation and earth history. And if we had a museum, and that was a be, by the way, our, the museum in Santee is like the museum of the beginning. And if we had a museum for what this verse is talking about, it would be the museum of, of the last days, it would be the museum of completion. And this is a theme with God. There is a beginning, there is a completion. The Bible starts and describes the beginning. That's what the word Genesis means, beginning. And the Bible ends and describes the completion. And since the book of Genesis is the book of beginning, the book of Revelation is the book of completion. And this remarkable phrase, the last days that we have in verse one, it describes the completion. And the Bible also uses another phrase to describe completion when it says in 1 Peter 4, 7, 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is at hand. Be therefore sober and watch unto prayer. The end, the end is the Greek word telos, telos, which means a point driven to, a goal, something to accomplish. He was on the cross, he said, detelestai, it's the goal. It's like a telephone, a telephone is the device that brings me to a person as a goal. And a beginning point, it's just one end of a line. It's just the start of a line. But the end point is the point of completion. And Genesis describes the beginning point of the world. Genesis is just one end of the line. And the question is, what is the goal? What is the end of the world? That's the end point. That's the completion of the world. And the line between those two points from the start point to the end point, that's the history of the world. That's the history of the world as it's being brought to a completion or its goal. When I went to high school in the 1960s, the big word was existentialism, which said that there is no end. There's no point. There's no meaning. But that's not true because God made the world and God has a goal for the world and the world will eventually reach God's goal in a very painful line called the history of the world. And God made each of us and our beginning. Our beginning was when we were born. Our birth date 
is our personal book of Genesis. It's our personal Genesis, the starting point of our lives. And God has a goal for each of us. And that goal is to come to Jesus Christ, who will bring us to heaven forever. And each of us individually, we're gonna determine, each of us are gonna determine, each of us will determine, each of us has determined, each of us will determine if we will come to Jesus Christ because it's gonna be by our own will. And when we come to Jesus Christ and we're in heaven forever, that's the end point. That's the goal, that's the completion point for us. That's to be with Christ forever. And the line in between our birth and our death in heaven is the history of our lives. It's a painful history. Each one of us needs to see that. Each one of us needs to have a goal for our lives, a life goal, a personal goal for our lives, a life goal that motivates us to live, a life goal that enables us to endure the hardships of life. Solomon called a life goal a vision, a vision when he said in Proverbs 29, 18, Proverbs 29, 18, where there is no vision, the people perish. Solomon meant that our life goal gives us the will to live. It keeps us from perishing. Our life goal gives us the strength to endure hardships. Last week I had an appointment at the Morris Cancer Center at UCSD for, for my cancer checkup. And um, I noticed that this time a nurse came in, had a new form, have new practice there for cancer patients, and they had questions. And one of the questions, the first question really behind the first question for the cancer patients, like me, was to find out how much will do you have to live? That's important for cancer patients. 11 years ago, I went through chemo and radiation, and I can tell you that going through Chemo, you need a strong will to live. My wife stood over my bed after my first session. She yelled to me, don't die. <laughs> <laughs> well, so UCSD wants to know. They want to know from their patients, how strong is your will to live? So the nurse has a form. And she asked this question as she wrote down the answer. She said, what motivates you in life? What do you hope to accomplish in life? You know what that question is? That's the same as asking, what is your life goal? What is the reason you want to live? A patient in England in the, in the national health system there in the NHS wrote, uh, is online, here's what he wrote. He had lymphoma, he got R-CHOP, it was a very rough chemo, he says, I was started on R-CHOP, which was a higher dose of chemotherapy than I'd had before, plus methotrexate. I then had beam radiation before having an autologous stem cell transplant. I took a long time to recover. One of my daughters was pregnant with our first grandchild. And I remember saying to the, the physiotherapist, I've got to be able to hold that baby. It gave me a specific goal to aim for, that's a life goal. 
That was his life goal. That gave him the will to live. The nurse asked me last week, what motivates you to live? What is your goal in life? I, I didn't know she was going to ask that question. It kind of caught me by surprise. I told, the word, I told her two words. She said, what are they? I said, Jesus Christ. He's my life goal. He's what motivates me to live, to walk in life with him, with Jesus Christ, to serve Jesus Christ, to be able to turn my eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. That's my life goal. She wrote on the forum, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the goal or the completion point that God wants us to each to have. That's what makes this phrase in verse one so dramatic. In the last days, we're getting to the end of the line. This is chapter four of Micah, which comes to us as like a breath of fresh air from chapters one and three. It was suffocating. Chapters one and three was all about declaring Israel's sins and the judgment for those sins. It was so depressing. But now comes what happens to the Jewish people after the storm has passed. The storm has passed with this period as we're getting to, as it starts off in the last days. And it's wonderful. It's wonderful. We've been longing, we've been hoping in this book to come to this chapter because we're waiting. We're waiting for Israel, for the world to come to this place in the future. You know the verse I read, it's on the corner of the United Nations building. They'll beat their, their spears into plowshares and so forth, their swords. You know that because that's the goal of the United Nations. That's the longing Learn war no more as we are in the middle of a Ukrainian war. And if I ask you to think, and then it goes on from there, the last days. And there's something else that's very remarkable in these two verses, first two verses. And sort of an introduction to it, I want you to just think in your mind now of the most famous mountains in the world. What comes to your mind? Just let your mind kind of daydream a little bit, soar over the world like you're in the space shuttle or, I mean, the space station, the International Space Station. Just a, and just, just kind of like go around and a little world tour and just think about all the great mountains of the world. And of course, you're going to think of the bold Mount Everest, 29,029 feet the graveyard of hundreds of climbers who failed to conquer it. And then maybe you'll think of, uh, of Mount Kilimanjaro. I remember standing at the base of Kilimanjaro in Tanzania, 19,341 feet. Africa's tallest mountain. It's the tallest freestanding mountain, freestanding mountain in the world that has no mountain range. It just boldly comes right up. Or have you been in Japan and you've taken that bullet train from Tokyo down to, down to Osaka? You pass by the pride of Japan, Mount Fuji, 12,388 feet. Or you've been to Disneyland or maybe you've been to that southern part of, of Switzerland. You've seen Mat the Matterhorn, the Matterhorn with its like pyramid, the jewel of the Swiss Alps. Or every morning I get up and when in school, when I was in high school, we would look out at Mont Blanc, Mont Blanc, covering three countries, 
Italy, France, Switzerland, 15,781 feet, the pearl of the Alps, the European Alps. Those are famous mountains of the world. And then you think about the mountains uh, more. Maybe you think of Mount Rainier, Mount, Mount McKinley, K2, or been Hawaii to Maui, or Ma Mauna Kea, or the Grand Teton, or, the, or, or Mount Ararat, or Mount Olympus, or, or Mount Whitney. And then you think about going over the world, flying over the world, think of the famous mountain ranges, the Alps, the Andes, the Sierra Madres, the Sierra Nevadas, the Denali's, the Pyrenees, the Canadian Rockies, the Colorado Rockies, the Blue Ridges, the Caucasus, all these mountains. And now with all those mountains in your mind, the mountains and the mountain ranges, you've traversed them all over the world and, and there's a title. There's a title now for one mountain in the world, and that mountain is, in verse 2, the title, the Mountain of the Lord. Which one of those great mountains? Which one of those great mountains that you just thought about would you crown with the title of verse 2, the Mountain of the Lord? Which great mountains of those great mountain ranges of the world you would say, this one is verse 2, the mountain of the Lord? And the shocking answer is none of them. None of them. If you possessed all the mountains of the world and you wanted to present one mountain to God and say, here, God, here's your mountain. Here's the mountain that should be, verse two, the mountain of the Lord. You would present each one of those and with each one, God would say, And then in frustration, God would say, don't you have another mountain? Another mountain that for me to make, verse two, the mountain of the Lord? Scene is very much like Jesse. Jesse, the father, as Samuel the prophet came to him to find the man who was gonna be the king of Israel, who he was gonna make king of Israel in 1 Samuel 16, 5. 1 Samuel 16, 5. He sanctified Jesse and his sons and called them to the sacrifice. And it came to pass when they came that he looked on Eliab and said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said unto Samuel, look not on his countenance or on the height of his statue because I've refused him. For the Lord seeth not as a man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither hath the Lord chosen this. Then Jesse made Shammah, to pass by. He said, neither hath the Lord chosen this. And again, Jesse made seven of his sons to pass before Samuel. And Samuel said unto Jesse, the Lord hath not chosen these. And Samuel said unto Jesse, are here all thy children? And he said, there remaineth yet the youngest. Behold, he keepeth the sheep. Samuel said unto Jesse, send him, fetch him, for we will not sit down till he come hither. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with all of a beautiful countenance and goodly to look to. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, this is he. And Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brethren, and the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. One by one, Jesse presented his sons, and they were all rejected, and a frustrated Samuel said, don't you have another son? And finally, oh, well, there's David, but he's a squirt. 
He's a squirt of a son, nothing impressive. And Samuel says, bring him. And God says, that's who I want to be king. And you, like Jesse, you present all the great mountains of the world and many thousands of mountains. And for each one, God keeps saying, no, 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 no. And finally, God in frustration would say to you, don't you have another mountain to present to you, to present to me, so that I could make it, verse two, the mountain of the Lord? And you'd remember, oh yeah, there's this one mountain, but it never made the list. And you'd say, there's one mountain, but it's not even... On any of my list, I really wouldn't even call it a mountain. It's just a hill. It's only 2,510 feet. It's really a squirt of a mountain. It's, uh, it's called Mount Zion. And God says, that's it. That mountain that you call a squirt of a mountain, Mount Zion, that will be, verse two, the mountain of the Lord. And you and I both would say, Mount Zion? Really? Really, God? You want that? Yiddish schmutz of a hill called Zion to be the most important mountain in the world. The Mount Zion is to be, verse two, the mountain of the Lord. And God would say, that's right. And don't you call my mountain a schmutz. Mount Zion is the most important mountain of the world. Mount Zion is, verse two, the mountain of the Lord. And we'd stand back in shock and we'd say, I guess I really didn't know God. Who is God? Who is God that he should pass up all those great mountains of the world and choose Mount Zion to be the one and only, verse two, mountain of the Lord? And the fact that God chose that title, that little, that title for that little lowly Mount Zion all over all the other mountains of the world, it teaches us so much about God. It teaches us that Jesus is God. And Jesus said about himself in Matthew eleven twenty nine. Matthew eleven twenty nine, I am meek and lowly in heart. Just like Mount Zion, if it could speak, would say, I am meek and only 2,500 feet, barely to be compared with the class of Mount Everest at 29,000 feet. That's why God chose Mount Zion. When Jesus came triumphantly into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he didn't come in a great white stallion, but he came, Matthew 21, 5, Matthew 21, 5, tell ye the daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh unto thee meek, and sitting upon an ass and a foal, a colt, the foal of an ass. A young donkey. That's why God chose Mount Zion. The history of God becoming a man named Jesus, summed up in Philippians 2.5, Philippians 2.5, Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. God became a man, a man of no reputation, a servant man, a humble man, a man obedient to death, a man obedient to the crucifixion. God became Isaiah 53.3, Isaiah 53.3, a man of sorrows, 
and acquainted with grief. That's why he chose lowly Mount Zion. God became a man who, Isaiah 53.5, Isaiah 53.5 was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we were healed. That's why God chose lowly Mount Zion. God became a man who endured the agony of Isaiah 53.6. Isaiah 53.6, the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's why God chose lowly Mount Zion. And in this mount, we see a sight that's unbelievable. Tom Cantor's messages can be listened to and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. For other free resources, email us at tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800-247-3051. Join our live services on YouTube by searching Friendship with God with Tom Cantor every Sunday at 5.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. What are you doing Sunday nights? Come join Friendship with God radio Bible teacher Tom Cantor of the Friendship with God Fellowship Church every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at The Vine at 9336 Abraham Way, Santee, California. Watch and listen live around the world to Tom Cantor Sunday evening on YouTube.com by searching for Friendship with God Fellowship or by going to our homepage at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. This program is brought to you by Israel Restoration Ministries.